So the place where we'd like to start this afternoon is in looking at the more uh, formal, intentional cultivation of metta as a practice. And I think in this we'll look at the ways that metta is used as a concentration practice, what is helpful and unhelpful about that, and certainly look at the ways in which metta is developed as an insight practice. So as John introduced this morning, metta as a formal practice pretty much kind of shapes itself around using a few simple phrases. The ones that John introduced this morning can be very, um, they're the ones that I incline towards using, but of course there is nothing particularly sacred or set in stone about these phrases. But we'll go into why we use those phrases, I think, in a bit. So what is actually happening in using the phrases? We're we're not using them as kind of empty recitations. We're not using them as a kind of mantra. But in, in a very real way, these phrases are articulating or putting into words a number of different things. They're putting into words the intentionality of metta practice. They're putting into words a sense of aspiration. Also, they are a way of quite consciously, intentionally inclining the mind towards metta and establishing an attitudinal vihara, an attitudinal home. Now, if we were to use these, the metta practice and these phrases as a concentration practice, we would pretty much try to keep the phrases going quite steadily, quite repetitively, without many pauses. Really, the phrases would be kind of anchors, much as we can use mindfulness of breathing, either as a concentration practice or as part of an insight practice. So in that sense, there's always the intention just to return to the phrases if we were using it as a concentration practice. Always the intention to use it, return to the phrases, bringing our attention back. Now, this can be actually quite skillful means, and I think one aspect of metta that is sometimes not spoken about so much is the way that metta can serve as a protection against obsession and proliferation. So as a concentration practice, we wouldn't be allowing many breaks in between the phrases. And by keeping the mind steady within the phrases, of course, there is a protection around that tendency to obsess and to proliferate. This can be, for many people, actually quite skillful means, just in the sense that we're not going to entertain two thoughts at the same time. And probably more helpful to entertain a thought in the form of these phrases that is more conducive to our well-being 
than some of our spectrum of thinking, which is essentially, you know, kind of self-abuse. So, better to know where we're making our home. But if we were to use metta practice much more as an insight practice, we would use the actual formal practice and apply the practice quite differently, really as John suggested this morning, that we're cultivating a quality of inner listening, cultivating a quality of receptivity in regard to what arises in response to the phrases. And of course, there are many responses that do arise and can arise. And I think sometimes people feel a little ashamed of some of these responses when they do meta practice because of the imagining of supposed to be having a certain kind of feeling. And it feels then a bit shameful when boredom arises you know, or disinterest, or resistance, or impatience, or cynicism, or aversion, or despair. Now, of course, as an insight practice, this is what we're interested in. This is actually kind of what we're pretty interested in. Can we bring metta in relationship, can we cultivate metta in relationship to these responses? or reactions. So they're not wrong, they're not somehow not doing the practice well, but we would probably recognize that there are no reactions that arise in relationship to the meta practice that are not pretty familiar arisings, sometimes eruptions, elsewhere in our lives. Okay, so we're not talking about entering into the landscape of a whole new spectrum of emotions and mental states and reactions that we've never seen before. You know, we don't suddenly open our eyes and say, wow, you know, boredom's new to me. <laughs> or aversion's new to me. But we are actually learning what it is to stand near to all of this with an attitude of befriending, an attitude of curiosity, an attitude really of kindness. But by sustaining the dedication to the intention and to the phrases, we're actually learning what it is to be undissuaded. Learning to be undissuaded by the tendencies and the reactions that arise. So what we are doing in that, we are cultivating a mind, a heart that is inclined towards freedom rather than the mind that creates and recreates dukkha. So before I go into some of the different implications of the different dimensions that we're accustomed to in metta practice, just one check, you want to... When we start to use metta as an insight practice, we're moving very, very far away from, I think, the normal terrain. And I really want to emphasize this, although Christine has already said it, from the normal terrain in which we usually practice metta. This almost mantric way of reciting uh, the phrases. 
so that one never comes into any real relationship with them. And what we're attempting to do in using the phrases in a more insightful way is to come into a really open listening relationship with them. Where we're not dictating what is going to arise, we're not dictating what the feelings are going to be, but we're open and spacious to what is actually arising. If you remember the metaphor that I used this morning in leading the practice, a very brief practice, it was only 15 minutes out of the half an hour that we did, it was dropping a pebble into the well of our being, just seeing what the ripples are. Sometimes, and I don't disagree with what Christine is saying, but sometimes I think we do find surprising things. On all occasions we find surprising things that we suddenly stumble upon what I would say are core feelings about ourselves and this openness to them. When we drop that pebble in, when I say, may I be safe and protected, may I be at peace, and the rest of the phrase, I might suddenly stumble upon, actually I don't deserve it, or some other feelings of unworthiness. And again, like the more mundane things that perhaps we discover, the things which are much, much more familiar to us, the things such as the boredom, the anxiety, the worries, all of these much, much more familiar terrain that we inhabit, we don't judge it. We observe it. This becomes something that we become very, very interested in, something we can explore, something we can sit with, literally sit with and open towards. So we come back to our theme again of the turning towards rather than turning away from here. So this becomes a very, very powerful practice. It becomes a very powerful way of actually beginning to discover some feelings, particularly when it's directed towards ourselves, about ourselves, which we haven't normally bumped into. They might be there. They might actually be governing a lot of our activities in ordinary life. And I think there is one thing that we probably all know is actually not terribly kind to ourselves in the Western world. I mean, this was one of the great discoveries of um, Eastern teachers when they first arrived in the West and started teaching this. In, in most Asian countries where metta, when I you know, did lots of training in Sri Lanka with metta practice, it's actually um, the part where it's directed towards yourself is actually quite a small segment. Um, when Westerners arrived here, they suddenly discovered, actually, that a lot of Western people don't like themselves very much. And this became a rather large segment uh, of the actual practice. And I think for the very reasons that I'm kind of alighting on here, which is that there are things which govern our behavior. There are wellsprings of our behavioral activity in this world, um, which are very well covered over a lot of the time. They're there, they're manifest often in our attitudes and our approaches to life, but they're never highlighted. The meta-practice somehow allows these to be seen. I'm not saying this is the exclusive way of seeing them, but it allows them to be seen and allows them to be held within the particular form of intention, the intention to be more friendly and to be more kind towards ourselves because that is what governs this practice, even if it's not present at this moment in time. If you remember yesterday, I used a particular phrase and said that 
in many senses, meta practice as an insight practice is a behavioral gesture with the mind. You know, it's what Christine has referred to in quite a number of occasions as inclining the mind in a particular way. And the way that you incline your mind and what that mind settles on um, becomes the way that we live, becomes, as the Buddha says, the form of our life. You know? However, it doesn't come easy, does it? You know, just as if you've got a, um, a problem, um, a phobia of some sort, to overcome that phobia, you have to make gestures, behavioral gestures, all the time. Um, you know, if you've got a, an OCD condition, an obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, then you have to move into um, working with it and against it in some way. This doesn't feel natural. And one of the things I think that defines a lot of um, my work that I've done in meta practice with people is people say it feels very unnatural. And I say good. <laughs> because that's just the way it is. It does feel unnatural because we're not used to making those gestures towards ourselves. In fact, almost in the Western world, and I wouldn't want to overgeneralize, but I do hear this very, very much, uh, we make a virtue of being hard on ourselves. Yeah? We make a real virtue of being hard on ourselves. And that often comes out in phrases. Again, you might, this might be familiar to you, you might not be. But, you know, I'm only being as hard on you as I would on myself. That means I'm beating you up because I'm beating me up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this does not show that inclination of the mind uh, towards matter. So we discover an awful lot, I think. Primary discovery, perhaps the more familiar. But sometimes we hit upon something which is, which is governing our reactivity in this world, which isn't so obvious. Um, just to pick up a little bit on what John's saying without hopefully being repetitive. But, um, I mean, we've seen this traditional outline of meta-development beginning with oneself. Um, I hope that you can appreciate that there is nothing set in stone about this. For some people, particularly who have developed a certain expertise in um, self-blame and self-judgment or carry long historical images of unworthiness, um, you know, this can be a tremendously challenging place to begin. But we also need to remember the attitudinal sense of metta, which is actually one of tremendous ease. We're not forcing anything. We're not telling ourselves we have to feel differently or that the discovery even of self-unworthiness is yet another failure. So we do need to remember that attitudinal commitment to a great sense of ease and well-being in metta practice. I often think of it as a way of kind of bringing a smile to the heart, in a sense. It's a way of gladdening the mind. And if you find yourself in, in cultivating meta practice, particularly towards oneself, that you feel like sort of one of these icebreaker ships going through the Arctic Circle, you know, kind of propelling your way forward, you need to step back a little bit and say, well, where is there a natural sense of this befriending. 
Because remember that we are building upon something we already know, that we have glimpsed in our lives. So very often it's actually for, for people who really struggle with the inwardly directed, inwardly related matter, sometimes it's quite helpful to start where there is an easefulness of metta. A remembering of what that is like. And then a building upon that taste, seeing whether it is possible to bring that same quality of really quite unconditional befriending and warmth to one's own being. I mean, as John says, when we bring out this aspect of metta, we truly do discover the self-story. And as an insight practice, this is very important. We discover the ways in which we cling to certain self-views. I am unworthy, or I don't deserve this. This is a very big statement. How does that guide our lives? We see the ways in which often we kind of bend beneath the kind of force of the winds of our own self-directed aversion. We've even in Western psychology and even in Western practice, almost kind of reified this, you know, imagining that we carry around within ourselves a little inner critic that lives somewhere, you know, and just comes out sniping. But we don't have a reified inner critic. We have a self-story that is laced with self-aversion, self-directed aversion, that manifests in self-directed aversive thinking. So meta practice is actually, again, this consideration that we, we emphasized so much yesterday. Where are we making the home, our own home, inwardly, as we develop the practice? So this is an investigation. This is a question. Do we make our home in the historical self-views, which are primarily, I might say, sustained through clinging and repetition? Self-views are sustained through clinging and repetition. You take away the clinging and repetition from self-views and they are pretty much thoughts that arise and pass. So by actually making this quite conscious choice to make our home within the phrases, the intentionality, the articulation of that intentionality and phrases, we're also quite consciously choosing to make our dwelling place, our sense of home, within both those intentions and aspirations. As an insight practice, this is quite a direct way of beginning uh, the releasing of that clinging. Remember the discussion we had yesterday. Do we orient our attention towards working with the difficult, unpacking the difficult, plowing through the difficult, or do we orient our attention, orientate our attention towards the cultivation of the helpful and the skillful and the awakening? This is exactly what we are doing in meta practice. We also see that there are kind of like, you know, very kind of like skillful means, I would say, embedded within the use of these different dimensions. But of course, the ultimate aim of meta practice 
is that these dimensions do indeed fall away and we begin to touch on simply a more embedded embedded way of being in this world, of kindness, of friendliness. We will look at this question of aversion and meta practice and aversion, I think, is a little bit later on in the afternoon. Yeah, please. Just following on from both what Christina said and I said a little bit earlier, that one of the great aspects of using meta in this way is it begins to highlight, I think, for us some of our what I call core narratives. Yeah. What uh, you know, Christina was referring to is embedded in repetition and clinging. Um, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our lives, about how we are. Um, actually, these all go under, go under a wonderful name in, in Pali, Sakayaditi. These are all the viewpoints that we take on ourselves. Um, and we believe them. We take them terribly personally. We act on them. We literally take them to heart. That's where we dwell. That becomes our dwelling place. Uh, the narratives, often very sad narratives, uh, about our lives and about our uh, expressions within life itself. And the unfortunate thing about these stories is they seem to be plausible, a lot of them, the stories that we tell ourselves. There's a wonderful English novel, which is a magical realist novel, which um, some of you might even have read. But within this story, which has all these weird and wonderful things happening in it, all these strange elements within it, um, you get this phrase that occurs every so often, which is, trust me, I'm telling you stories. <laughs> and I almost feel that this is the voice, the kind of inner voice um, that relates to our narratives. Trust me, I'm telling you stories. And we relate to them as if they are true one of the things, I think, one of the beautiful things we learn from all meditative practice, let alone the meta practice, is that we don't have to trust thoughts. We don't have to trust the narrative constructions uh, that we engage in. We get actually a time during the meditative period to suspend trust in these, to actually suspend belief in what our minds are telling us, not to create enemies out of what is arising. In fact, again, this is part of the matter. We don't create enemies. This is part of the kindness. This is the part of the friendliness. This is the reorientation towards what is going on. Um, and we view them, and we see them as stories. And sometimes we can actually see through them, you know, see them as constructions of a wounded mind, of a wounded heart. Um, that we cling so desperately to, to give ourselves some form of identity, some sense of being in this world. Now, a lot of this is antithetical to, to meta because we cling, and I know Christina said we're going to talk about it a little bit later, we cling to aversion. Even when that aversion is painful, we cling to that woundedness because it gives us a sense of self often. In greater and lesser measures for all of us. For some people it's very great, for some people it's very little. But we often operate from this sense and it keeps us in many ways separated from the world and from others. And actually it's like a division within ourselves. It's like we reside behind double glazing. <coughs> we never really get out to contact anything at all. 
starting from, at times, that base of inwardly directed kindness, and that's not always the right way, right place for everyone to start. In the more kind of traditional development, the attention then turns towards the benefactor. The person that we feel has been, um, that, that we appreciate for perhaps their selflessness, their support, their encouragement. Sometimes a benefactor is someone in, who's played an active role in our life. Sometimes people choose a benefactor who they've never met but who they admire for their dignity, their selflessness, their compassion. Now, one thing that I always feel within metta practice is that there is both an internal and an external dimension to all of these areas. So traditionally, I think we're more encouraged to recall or to bring to mind someone you know, who we can actually have that genuine sense of that they are a benefactor. So, so what aspect of metta? You know, metta is a multi-spectrum quality. What aspect of metta is meant to be touched upon as we enter into this territory? A lot of it is about the aspect of metta, which is appreciation, thankfulness, gratitude, but I always feel in metta practice it's very important to also consider the ways in which these qualities of altruism, <coughs> these qualities of care, um, also manifest inwardly. The ways that we are in moments in our lives a genuine benefactor to ourselves. And, you know, in Western uh, kind of psychological makeup, there is, of course, we're pretty hardwired to focus on what's wrong with us and what's wrong everywhere. You know, and from the perspective of evolutionary science, this was kind of a survival skill. Um, but from the perspective of meta practice, this is actually quite an unhelpful tendency. And we tend to have far more expertise in, in being you know, quite skilled at, at selective perception. Selecting in ourselves and focusing on ourselves, our failures, our imperfections, our flaws. And metapractice is not in any way a denial of what is amiss. But we are not so, I would say, so intuitively or naturally inclined to actually bring forth that awareness of actually what is to be appreciated inwardly. You showed up today. Isn't that wonderful? Here you are. That takes quite a bit of commitment. That takes quite a bit of you know, courage. That actually takes quite a bit of dedication and sincerity. The many ways in which we actually uh, do, do manifest metta inwardly in withdrawing attention from the belief systems and actually caring for what is going on within ourselves. The ways that we um, uh, at times learn to bring more compassion, more empathy inwardly. It's very interesting with metta practice that as we turn our attention towards external benefactors, you know, there can be a, a sense of gratitude and appreciation. It's not unusual that there's a sense of envy. 
or resentment, depending on who our benefactor is, oh, they've got it so good. You know, when we think about it a little bit more, you know, and pass that first, first, first inkling of gratitude and the mind gets to work on the benefactor, ah, oh, but they, you know, a little resentful, you know, how come they're so, so pure and elevated and I'm not, you know? But this is all part of the parcel. It's all part of the parcel of what we're exploring, how many of our emotions and our relationships are actually quite mixed, quite mixed. One of the resistances that often comes up to meta practice, I think, and it's worth again highlighting this, examining it, is that somehow this is self-indulgent particularly the first part of developing it towards ourselves. And again, we can never forget that um, a lot of our attitudes are derived, obviously, from the cultures that we are born into, live within, are educated within, and these are Christian cultures. And the emphasis often in the way Christianity has come down to us is the emphasis on doing to others rather than doing to yourself. So much so that, particularly within Protestantism, it's seen very much as a self-indulgence to engage in any self-work. The work should be for others. Interestingly, the Buddha puts it this way. Um, He says that caring for self is to care for others. To care for others is to care for self. So he doesn't um, come down on either side of the equation and said one should only do this. There is this interactivity. There is this interdependence between the two dimensions in working with this sense of meta for oneself. One develops it towards and can possibly extend it towards others. In extending it towards others, we start to develop it towards ourselves. So it's not an either-or. It's an and-both. We're very unused to that in the Western world, I think. We like exclusives. It's either this or it's that. Otherwise, it's a contradiction. This is not. This is an and both. We're doing it for ourselves and, as as Christine has moved into the other categories, and for others as well. But the foundation becomes this developing it and extending it towards self. Because if we don't, um, at some point, even if we engage in these activities of care and kindness and friendliness and that, at some point in time, we're going to find ourselves running on empty. There's nothing there. There's nothing left to give. There's been no way of self-replenishing. What we're doing here, and this is what is so important. Again, I don't want to just really, in a sense, just define this in terms of just meta-practice, but I think any of the practices that we engage in our practices of resourcing ourselves, beginning to resource ourselves in what is becoming an increasingly demanding world. There is no doubt that the the calls upon us get greater and greater and greater, I think, in the modern world. And we don't need an either-or, either for others or for ourselves. It has to be an ambos. There's a couple of lines from the teaching that I'm very fond of when the Buddha says, you know, who is my enemy? He says, my mind is my enemy. He says, who is my friend? 
He says, my mind is my friend. And if we look about where this practice is going, it's actually pretty dedicated to developing a mind that is a friend, that you can feel is reliable, that is a refuge, that is awake, that is creative, that is cooperating with intentions and aspirations. So this is actually the direction that practice is going. It's not always our experience, is it? We often are very, very familiar with the mind that feels no friend. You know, as much as things in the world might torment us, you know, as much as we might feel tormented by the sound of the bulldozer outside, that's nothing compared to what our minds can do to ourselves. So the next category is actually we move into is the domain of a good friend, a dear friend. Now again, there is, I would say, I would want to consider an external and an internal dimension to this. So in the practice, we're invited to uh, bring into our attention someone for whom there's a natural affection, a very unforced warmth, a, a, a sense of someone dear. You know, and you reflect upon the qualities of friendship, you know, acceptance, trust, um, support, uh, kindness, the capacity to share both laughter and, and sorrow. So the, this is actually where we begin. And then, of course, the internal dimension is what would it really mean to be a good friend to ourselves? That's actually, I think, quite a big question. What would it mean to be a good friend to ourselves? There's a lot of things we might cultivate, and actually there's really a lot of things we might restrain from. Hmm? The second this might be bigger than the first. <laughs> but what would it mean to be a good friend? What would we restrain from to be a good friend to ourselves? A lot of the self-directed harshness the obsessions, the proliferations, the emotional storms, clinging, grasping, view-forming. I mean, a lot of this is actually in the domain of being a good friend to ourselves. So think or consider what metta practice is in terms of not only you know, forming those connections and those links with people in our life who are dear to us, what is it like to transplant that inwardly and to think of, of this path as actually being a path in which we are truly learning those gestures of inner befriending, which is what metta practice is really concerned with. I just want to go back a second, go back a second to the benefactor. Because I think this is a very, very important category, and then I'll touch on what Christine has been saying. Benefactor is a vastly important category. Actually, it has very many connections in many ways with some dimensions of Mahayana Buddhism. You know? Although I teach primarily from the early tradition, I think this is one of the great things within Mahayana 
Buddhist traditions, these you know, vehicles which are associated particularly with Tibetan and Zen and Chinese Buddhism and things like this, that there is this sense of that we are dependent on others. We are wholly dependent on others. We have this wonderful arrogance as we move around the world, which is, I'm independent. <laughs> I can get on, I can live my life, and I'm independent of others and what others think of me and what others do. Actually, we're just as helpless as children most of the time, you know, in the sense that everything that I wear, everything you've eaten at lunchtime is being produced by others. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a wonderful category because we have a limitless number of benefactors. Yeah. You could do this meditation for years and years and years and years and choose all those benefactors, both seen and unseen, in your life that has supported you just being here, just being alive at this moment in time. Yeah. Let alone uh, the sense of how we've aided ourselves and that more independent sense of ourselves, but we are as helpless as children as we move through this world. Everything that I wear, everything that I have on my feet, everything, the air that I breathe, you know, everything place, places me in relation to others who are often giving us something. Yeah. Sometimes for monetary benefit in the human world, sometimes not. Yeah, when we extend it out. So it's a vast field, a vast field of the benefit that we receive from others. And I think, you know, just by having this category, and I might add, by the way, that these categories are not canonical. We don't find them in the early strat of the Nikayas. We find them in Buddhaghosa, and I have many criticisms of Buddhaghosa, but I think this is one good dimension of his approach of using categories such as this. Um, possibly they go back to ancient practices, but who knows? We can't tell. But certainly when we start to look at this category of the benefactor, we start looking at an infinite realm of people and beings in the big sense of the world whose word has aided us in our simply living and the number of years that we have lived. That, for me, I don't know how it sounds to you, is very humbling. It's a very humbling experience. Any arrogance I might feel is put immediately in check um, by actually uh, recalling this. Again, it's a sati. It's a recollection. In developing this, we're recollecting all of those who have helped. We recollect all the good friends that might have been in our lives, and they're not exclusive, are they? None of these categories are mutually exclusive. All those good friends who have aided and have helped us. And that's a crossover category, isn't it? Benefactor, dear friend. Benefactor, good friend. Uh, It's a crossover category because, you know, many of those dear friends have been such wonderful benefactors to us, helping us in difficult times, supporting us in times of trials and traumas, as we often support them if we're good friends to them. One of the most lauded categories in, I've turned it over now, the paper, but one of the most lauded categories in um, Buddhist practice within the Sangha is something called Kalyanamitta, a good spiritual friend. One of the greatest gifts we can offer both to others and to ourselves, and this is where Christina was talking, is to offer the gift of friendship. Yeah. And everything that's implied in that gift of friendship. 
of the suspension of judgment, the openness, the caring, uh, the feeling along with, which we'll talk more about as we go through. And so these are two wonderful categories. That friendship that we can extend towards ourselves, wishing the good for ourselves, not in an arrogant way, because it's tempered by the fact that we have been helped all the way along by others in our lives. So I personally feel that these are two categories that's really worth, if we do the formal practice, spending quite a lot of time with. They seem easy. And often they're categorized as being the easy ones. You know, so what's wrong with that? You know, for once. <laughs> we can give ourselves really hard times in meditation. Let's go for the really hard bit, the really difficult bit. Let's go to the person I really dislike. <laughs> No, it's worth spending some time in really grounding oneself in, in, in a more known world, but actually is really quite unknown in terms of our ability to appreciate and extend that appreciation into the world of friendship and into the world of you know, the benefactors that we've had. Before I next move, move on to the next category, I also have something to add to that. Um, sometimes in doing mental practice, you know, I've heard people say, well, I don't really have a benefactor. You know, I can't really think of anyone who really uh, has inspired me. Um, and actually, it's very interesting. I, I once asked my own children, you know, who, who are the people in this world who really inspire you? Because I feel like I've had so many in my own life that I've, you know, felt so heartened by. And actually they found it difficult in their world, in their immediate world of exposure actually, to think of people that they really actually felt inspired to, inspired by, which I found actually remarkably sad. I think people can get a little bit too sort of dramatic about benefactors, you know, thinking that, you know, benefactors got rescued you from a burning building, you know, or pulled you out of the ice, you know. I just think, well, how many times in a day do you actually say or think thank you towards someone? You know, that's simple. The small acts of, of benevolence that we, we receive and... Martin Luther King Jr. put it so eloquently, and I'm, I'm, I will not be quite totally accurate in this, but he, he, he wrote something once. He said, we live eternally in the bed. You get up in the morning and you drink coffee, you know, grown by a South American. He says, you reach for tea picked for you by someone in China or India. You reach for the soap to wash yourself with, provided by a European. He says, you eat food that has been grown by, by farmers, you know, that you will never meet. He says, before you even leave your house in the morning, you are in debt to half of the world. <laughs> I thought, well, that, that's actually so true. So true. So the next category in this traditional outline, and this is, I think that for me, this is a really the part of metta which actually speaks most to its purely altruistic and selfless nature. It's often referred to as the neutral person, but as John and I would, I think, agree, neutrality is a state of misperception. It is not actually a statement of actuality. 
But there are people in the world that we feel more indifferent towards. And if you think about the Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, when we work with Vedana, the pleasant, the unpleasant feeling, hedonic tone of experience, and that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Well, you know what? With the people in the world we feel more indifferent towards, we have exactly the same reaction as we have to this Vedana tone of that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We don't see them. We don't sense any sense of relatedness. Why? I find this really juicy. Because we don't share a personal story or history with them. This is often what our relationships are primarily built upon, aren't we? Aren't they? We share similar likes or dislikes. We support the same football club, you know. We support the same tennis player. We dislike tempeh together. You know, we have we have this whole kind of realm of shared narrative, shared story upon which our relationships are established. And there's there's nothing amiss with that. that that's quite understandable. But actually think of what is it like to have a sense of relationship with someone with whom we have no shared story or history. Because to, you know, what do we do with the more, the Vedana tone that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant? We tend to space out, don't we? We disconnect. Hmm? Or we spring into craving, wanting, thinking something is missing. Think about someone you've never met before and you bump into them in a party. We don't say to them, are you well? Are you happy? We say, what do you do? (laughs) What do you do? And then then we kind of feel around until we figure out some shared preferences or dislikes and we know, ah, this is a person I can build a relationship with or not. But actually, in, in kind of you know, living in the world based only on likes and dislikes. Of course, we do feel quite disconnected from the countless, the innumerable beings in this world with whom we share no history or story. And I think there, there is a, two pathways we can follow in the face of that, because actually that's the majority of people we probably encounter in our days. One way we can go is to just ignore these people, feel indifferent towards them. The other way we go, I think, is touches much more on the kind of altruistic, the universal quality of metta, which is to be able to see. To be able to see. I remember hearing someone who lived on the streets once say, the most painful part of being homeless is that no one will look you in the eye. We can begin to see, we can begin to sense, and we begin perhaps to tap into the more universal story that this person that I see in front of me, like me, they long to be happy, they long to be safe and protected, they long to be free from pain and fear. Like me, they have been through countless events and experiences in their lives. They have suffered, they have loved, they have lost. And we can begin to tap much more into this kind of universal story which gives us a capacity so central 
both to metta and its outgoing kindness or compassion, which is the encouragement to widen our circle of concern. To widen our circle of concern. That this path has never been purely for self-improvement or self-benefit. This path is teaching us to be a participant in the world that we live in and to be so conscious about how we're engaging with that world. And an engagement rooted in metta and understanding is an engagement which contributes to the well-being of our world no matter what evidence we are or are not provided with. It makes a difference. Think of it in your own life if you bump into somebody on the street and they actually treat you with kindness rather than shouting at you. Coming through immigration at Logan Airport, I remember once, you know, so often you just greet, get greeted with this wall of suspicion, you know, you're, you are bound to be doing something unwholesome in America, you know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of sometimes the sort of feeling you get. I remember one time I walked up and the guy looked at my passport and he says, IMS has sponsored your visa. He says, I sit at IMS. He said, I'm so happy you're here. He said, I, ho I really hope you come often, you know. IMS is doing so. And I stand there and I had my jaws dropping. And I, and I just thought, wow, that, that is actually, you know, my <laughs> But we know this in our own life, what it is be like to be treated with respect and dignity and care, and what it is like to be treated with harshness and cruelty. That may, that's not just a mind moment, you know? It is something actually that contributes to the shape of our life, isn't it? The shape of our day. Think of it if someone quite inadvertently or seemingly unconsciously treats you harshly, the seeds that are planted and how they can linger you know, for hours and days, you know, maybe they're right, you know, maybe I deserve that, you know. Uh, and when someone treats you with great care and kindness. So there is something about widening this circle of our concern and the way that the path has always both these, you know, deeply moments which are deeply concerned with the well-being of our heart and mind. And yet that is not separate from being deeply concerned with the well-being and the peace and the ease of all hearts and minds. Things about this, and I think we ought to press the pause button and see if there's any points of clarification people want. Because the category of the so-called neutral person, and I do say and agree with everything that Christina said about this, the so-called neutral person is not neutral at all. Um, I would like to bring you back to the metasutta that I read yesterday. Although I said these categories are not canonical, in many ways they're implicit in what is in the metasutta. You know, we extend this, you know, the meta towards beings both seen and unseen. That's the phrase that's used in the metasutta, both beings are seen and unseen. Well, the benefactor, the dear friend, the difficult person, you know, these are the seen. Yeah. In many ways, the, there's an invisibility to this neutral category, which isn't neutral. I actually call it, like Christina, the category of indifference, mostly. 
Um, there's an invisibility to it. Unless they impinge on your consciousness in some way. Most people, even you know, in a kind of, I don't know, retail situation, they're functionaries. They function. They either function well. You might take, if they function well, they completely disappear sometimes. If they function badly, then you might notice them you know, in those situations. We walk down the street, we pass myriads and myriads of faces, all with stories, all with histories, all with their own woundedness and their own joys as we pass on the street, and we don't really see them. So this is about this is a real sense in the insight part of seeing, beginning to see. And it's very difficult. It's actually very difficult. I mean, the category... Where we used to teach at Gaia House in, in the UK. I used to be involved in teaching a three, sometimes four-week meta-retreat yeah, just on this. And there was a lovely lady from, from Holland... Um, who actually came to a horrifying revelation for her, thinking that she was, you know, she comes from this very liberal culture, which is Dutch culture, um, that she actually couldn't find anybody of a category that she thought fitted this one of so-called neutrality at all. Everybody fell into like or dislike. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a startling revelation, isn't it, when you come across that? Um, and people do probably have more difficulty with this category than many others. You know, speak to them about somebody or somebody who's a difficult person. Almost automatically, even if it's just from the world stage, somebody will pop up. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of this particular category, it's very difficult to see because of that invisibility of these people. The vast unseen people who actually we're encountering all the time. And if ever there is a wake-up call in this meta practice, it's that, to wake up and to actually start to pay attention, even, even just selectively initially, to people who, for example, the person at the checkout, yeah. the person who's walking along the street, who you might encounter, I don't know, on your journey to work every day or something, yeah, the person on the subway. These are people who you can actually focus on, recognize. Recognize, I think, what Christina was talking about, your shared humanity in this. You know, all beings want not pain. That's what they don't want. All beings want some kind of contentment, some kind of peace, some kind of security, some kind of ease in this world. And unless we open ourselves up to that, actually deliberately, in some senses, make the effort uh, and with diligence to focus on individuals, there will be this vast sea of invisibility out there for us always. Shall we pause for a second? Okay. Points of clarification or comments that people would like to make? John? That's right. But, the, um, but they're implicit in the metta I think just in that phrase, the seen and the unseen. It's to, the metta is to be extended towards beings both seen and unseen. The seen, I think, is just spelt out in terms of the particular categories, like myself, the good friend, 
the benefactor and so on and so forth. The unseen are those, you know, literally unseen in other cultures, other countries, but also I think more near, closer to home, those who I've just said that we encounter but don't encounter. Those we bump into but we never see. Yeah. That's a real challenge. I think that's a huge challenge for us to involve. So they're not canonical, but I think they're very, very implicit if we start to spell it out within the Metasutta. Yeah. I think if we actually did the categories from the Metasutta, it would actually kind of look sort of strange, wouldn't it? The short and the tall. <laughs> <laughs> the big and the small. Right. <laughs> kind of like loses a bit. <laughs> It might do, and it might not. <laughs> because, as I mentioned, you know, the person that we meet for the first time, we often do endeavor to build a, a relationship based upon familiarity and shared preferences, rather than um, uh, one that is rooted really in that kind of more universal human story, a very human story. And, and often, you know, the relationships, the friend is the one that we can share those preferences with. The enemy is one who often disagrees with us, sadly. Trish. Yeah. I mean, it's also very important. I think I'd just like to say at this point that, you know, there, there's certain kind of like restrictions that are often mentioned in the way that meta practice has been learned for people. Like, you don't ever do meta practice for people who've died. You don't meet, do meta practice for someone you're in a relationship with. And, you know, I would not agree with those restrictions. Mm. Um, I mean, I think sometimes there's more care needed in certain areas of bringing people into meta practice. But actually, if it is to be unconditional and boundless, you know, we have to be wary of exclusions. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the boundless practice, but it doesn't include you. <laughs> Everyone, not you, no. <laughs> What was the last one, sir? I thought you said efforts to control. Uh, I didn't, but that's good. That's good to include. <laughs> I might have furnished it myself. That's good. 
Yeah. I, and just, you know, just, just writing these, these, this little, you know, list down made me intrigued. I, I felt like, it's, wow, that's a lot of things. It's I a good about. investigation. It's a good investigation. I mean, it's really a good question to pose inwardly is, what are the ways in which I am not a friend to myself? It's the places we suffer, it's the places we struggle, it's the places we feel tormented, the places where we feel most estranged, disconnected. Um, you know, and of course some people have their own individual areas of development and expertise in that. Many of them are very universal patterns. They're very universal patterns of inner, inwardly generated torment. And it's, it's actually very, very useful to explore that. And even as an exercise, to write a short or however long a list it needs to be. Because in a way, it sort of gets a sense of how meta, in my understanding, is not only a cultivation and an offering, it's also a restraint. It's also a restraint. You know, and we see that behaviorally, how often, for example, you know, uh, ethical guidelines or precepts are on one level a, a behavioral restraining process pointing towards an inwardly inner examination of where that arises from. And I, I, I think there is that very big piece of metta which is about restraining from acts of harm directed inwardly. And, you know, this is actually so um, evidence kind of in Western psychology today that, you know, in the a, a field that John and I very much support, which is, um, um, you know, training teachers of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, for example. But some of the research that's done is really showing that, you know, the modalities of therapeutic application are kind of really somewhat secondary in terms of the transformations that people can go through. That the biggest transformations are actually put down to a person's capacity to learn to cultivate inner kindness and compassion. That's pretty amazing. You know? So it doesn't matter what technique you use, you know, in a way it hardly matters. But this, this is central as a way out of really tormented mind states and emotional states. I mean, and so, you know, and that's, you know, in quite extreme situations of torment and distress. So I think there is a very, very important and genuine investigation there about, you know, how meta might actually begin with restraining, but on a ground of understanding not that this is bad or wrong or terrible, but this is the way in which dukkha is created and recreated moment to moment through those mechanisms. I think we are going to take a break. I mean, bear in mind, we do have an hour this evening, and if we have time later on, we will have a Another pause. It's 10 to 4. If we could come back at 5 after 4. Is there anyone who's willing to give the bell just in this central area ring? Thank you, Roberta. At um, 4 o'clock, please. Thank you.
So we go to this dimension of metta practice, which is really concerned with the difficult people in our lives. And I'm always a little curious in teaching metta practice how people seem to be almost panting to get here. But, but then I think it might have something to do with some agendas. We would like the difficult people not to be difficult. If we can get rid of them, we'd at least like them not to be difficult. But there's something deeper, too, because I think, you know, one of the great torments of human life is the experiences of estrangement and conflict and breakdown in relationship and everything that can follow on from that. Here, too, I would actually point to two dimensions of this. There can be quite difficult people externally in our life. And just to point out that meta practice is not going to turn them into nice people necessarily. Hmm? They may stay difficult. Our relationship may change. But there's also, of course, the difficult um, parts of ourselves that we cannot accept, that we generally tend to have exactly a a replicated relationship to, as we have to the difficult people in our lives of fear and mistrust and anxiety, of condemnation, of judgment, of blame, and how quickly, both inwardly and outwardly, in the face of the difficult, we move into our familiar mechanisms of avoidance, or sometimes we sink into despair and disconnection from others and also from aspects of our own being. And I think as we move, you have to remember that in meta practice, in starting with is so-called easy, it's not necessarily easy, but some of the domains where at least there's a taste of, of meta and, and friendliness and warmth. We have been learning certain skills, actually, that we are bringing into this more, most challenging domain. You know, we've been learning skills of sustaining attention. We've been learning the skills of renewing that attitudinal commitment again and again. You know, in a way, we've almost been strengthening the muscle of metta in some of the domains where it's at least more accessible to us. But when we move into this domain of the difficult, I think here we actually really are moving into, in my understanding, what is the heart of metta as an insight practice, which is uprooting aversion, uprooting ill will. Hmm? Um, If you even we said a lot yesterday but if you remember yesterday when we mentioned you know how much the buddha i think quite rightly spotted uh, you know greed hatred and confusion as being the sources of torment and struggle in our life how they manifest in the in the five hindrances hatred's a very strong word we may look at our lives and and don't actually feel that we really hate anyone which would be a relief. Um, But of course, hatred is also a spectrum word. If we look at ill will, the spectrum of ill will, impatience, frustration, um, resistance, blame, shame, uh, condemnation, uh, 
disdain, contempt, irritation. Um, I even actually even think sometimes as fantasy as a kind of ill will because it's a way of disconnecting from what is. It's a way of you know, trying to move away from what actually is. So as we actually bring metta more into this domain, we really understand that metta practice is not about consoling ourselves. It really is about liberating the heart from the toxicity of aversion, ill will. One of our most deeply rooted primary emotional habit patterns, one of the primary manifestations of confusion. So here the metta practice is not concerned only with difficult people in our life. It is concerned with all the places where ill will arises. And this is where I think we really come up. For me, it's where the metta practice comes out of the um, the Buddhaghosa era of just the human domains. It comes into the world of events and experiences and our relationship to them. All of the places where aversion, resistance, ill will arises. You know, if you, if you really consider it, and I've said this in one of our groups at least, you know, it doesn't make any sense, does it, if you're undertaking a, a kind of pathway of cultivating metta and, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you're bringing the benefactor to your mind and meanwhile your back is killing you and you're ignoring it just so you can stay with the benefactor and say, well, my back doesn't really matter no matter how irritated I am with it. It makes no sense. You know, wherever ill will arises, this is the place where metta is cultivated. Very often in that, there is a shift in the phrases in my understanding because metta is always a relational practice. So, you know, if I am actually looking at how I relate to that aching back, (coughs) that chronic pain, um, that difficult situation in my life, you know, where things are crumbling, it's, it's, it's as if the phrases too need to adjust to address that domain. You know, what is it like to actually be able to say, you know, may I be peaceful in the midst of this? May I find ease and kindness in the midst of this? May I feel safe and protected in the midst of this. And this is the place for me where, where metta really really is kind of getting really to the heart of the matter. The way, in, you know, as the Buddha said in his, in his own teaching, you know, when he looked at the world around him, closed his eyes and looked at the world within, that it was not difficult that ill will was actually, he described it as a poison something that poisons human relationship, poisons our world, um, has no outcome other than to create suffering. Hmm? So I think the the Buddha was actually quite, uh, you know, placing this so central in his teaching. Um, It was really acknowledging this and, and looking at the way in which ill will doesn't have a lot of conscience, does it? And it certainly doesn't have any restraint. I mean, ill will can seize upon anything. Um, 
you know, and the actual, you know, display of ill will in our world is sometimes described as a kind of freedom. That is weird. You know, I can kick that car if I want. This is a free country. Well, actually, you know, the world is full of unrestrained ill will. We see it all around us. We don't have to look very far. And we see the very big, big expressions of that. But we actually perhaps also see the way in which ill will or aversion seeps through into our speech and can govern our actions and choices. We want to avoid, sometimes we even annihilate what we cannot be bear to be with. This may be turned, the, the kind of force of that, of course, can be turned upon others in varying degrees of intensity. Turned inwardly, it also has varying degrees of intensity from the ongoing sniping to actually the wish for, you know, the seeking for annihilation, suicide, you know, erasure, erasure of what is happening. What we see in staying close to the difficult person in meta practice, we're actually withdrawing our consent from feeding these patterns. We stay near to, we include, we learn, we can develop our capacity to befriend. We don't have to love them. We don't have to love them. But we may be able to stay close to. We can learn in doing that, and this is also the restraining element, we're learning to calm the impulses of fear, of rejection, of avoidance, and to starve the impulse of aversion. In metapractice, we are starving the impulse of aversion. And again, there's no value judgment placed on this. It's not like, you know, this is wrong, I shouldn't feel this. It's because I am feeling it that meta is developed. And because I understand where it goes. One of the things I think you'll probably notice from what Christine is saying, that this approach makes meta not so exclusive. It starts to shade into equanimity as well. It starts to connect with equanimity in being able to dwell alongside the difficult without having to react to it. Um, And our patterns of reaction are usually pretty stylized. They're pretty well in place. So we are learning to look at difficulty and life's difficulties, not just the difficult person. I mean, I think I agree with Christina here that I think we narrow it too much if we just think of it as the difficult person. It's the difficulty within, it's the difficulty without. It's, uh, if you like, life's difficulties. Um, The Buddha was a realist. He was not... um, he was not an idealist in the, th- in the thought that somehow all difficulty was going to be obliterated. It's our capacity to deal with difficulty through the diminishment of aversion, which was the issue. Even towards his end, the end of his life, and some of you I know will have heard me say this before, even towards the end of his life, he's actually saying, actually, life is full of difficulties. You know, he actually says, all compounding phenomena are impermanent. Yeah, that's pretty difficult to deal with. Everything is impermanent. Everything we come across is impermanent. Now get on with it. 
Now deal with it. Now engage with it diligently. If we take the kind of more conventional translation of this. The difficulties that are manifest within, well, how would I put this? I would put this as being like there is the stranger within. That stranger within who we all find extremely problematic to deal with. So much so that we push it to one side. That's the shadow side in the Jungian sense that we don't want to know about. This shades not just in from ill will, it shades into ignorance or into confusion. I don't want to know about that side of myself. Equally, I try to avoid unpleasantness in my life. Guess what? Unpleasantness comes to us, even when I try to avoid it. It's there. It's manifesting itself in my life, just even in the minor irritations which I come across in day-to-day existence. So this is a very realistic look at the full, if you like, panoply of difficulties that we're likely to occur. And some of those difficulties are other people. Are others who come into your life and actually don't bend to your will. (laughs) Have you noticed how that's a real source of problems? (laughs) The other source of problems is the other isn't like me as well. What we actually often want is somebody to be like me, um, to have those shared horizons. So when we're confronting the difficult person um, here, it's learning to dwell alongside them without this enmity that the Buddha spoke about, I think so eloquently in the quote that I gave you yesterday, being able to dwell alongside that enmity, there's often the hostility that is often there with others, without reacting. That's the important thing, without the reaction, without the automatic coming into play of our normal reactivity of irritation and anger and resentment and downright hatred on occasions and certainly violent thoughts that arise in these situations. When we talk about these words, I might just say something about the words in the original language. These are spectrum words. When we, when we ever, whenever we use words like ill will, viapada in, in Pali, these are spectrum words. Uh, they cover everything from something which is extremely minor. So kind of minor just irritation with somebody um, to actual downright hatred and, and the wish to annihilate them as well, as Christina mentioned. So these are spectrum words. They cover this vast range of our emotions from that just that simple irritation that arises on the thought of somebody um, not doing something I want them to do to you know, that real aggressive, hating attitude that arises when I call to mind somebody who's done something fearful to me in the past. So we have this sense of learning to dwell, and that learning to dwell is not changing the other. I think this has been made, I just really want to emphasize this, this this point has been made already by Christina. We cannot change the other. All we can do is change our ways of dwelling with that person, to make our home in a gentler, a kinder, a friendlier approach. I was saying to one of my groups earlier on, the meditation teacher I worked a lot with in Sri Lanka, um, whose big practice which was part of the reason why I got so, um, uh, so steeped in metta practice, 
was because this was his primary practice. This is what he did. And he had a wonderful phrase. He said, you must learn to befriend your monsters. Learn to befriend all of those monsters which arise within you, without ill will, without resentment, without rejection. To welcome them in as if you're welcoming them into a party. I thought it was a lovely phrase to actually welcome the difficulty in rather than trying to retract ourselves from it. So when we're introducing metta into this area of difficulty, no matter what the difficulty is, whether it's a difficult situation or a difficult person, we're welcoming it in. We're not pushing it away. And part of the practice can be the welcoming in and seeing, for example, what happens to our bodies, what manifests in our bodies. Sometimes we have much more of a key into dealing with difficulty, not through trying to deal with it with our minds, but actually dwelling on what the physical reactions are within the body, beginning to examine it within physicality, as opposed to the kind of, I don't know, the mental pipe that we can go down (laughs) and never climb out of. So we key into something which is much, much, much more direct in our own experience, which is the physicality of the dealing with difficulty. I think very important to just really remind inwardly that, of course, we're, we're not talking about something abstract, abstract here or something that happens to somebody else. I bet most of you in this room have gone through the entire day today without really hating anyone or hating anything. But think about how many flinch moments there might have been. Hmm? Don't like that sensation. Sound, no. In London, no. person in front of me taking so long at the tear, no. Think, think about how many flinch moments there are and how often we skim over them thinking they don't matter. But you know, very much in, in, in this pathway, they actually do matter because these are emotional habit patterns. They are emotional habits, they're emotional reactions, which always have, which essentially have the same outcome of, of deepening that rut. You know, and I, I think if there was any kind of mantra of metta, it would be this too, this too. You know, actually really learning to pay attention to the flinch moments. Um, there's a need to be, I think, in the formal practice, really quite fluid, you know, if you are working with, say, like the formal, the more traditional dimensions of, you know, benefactor, friend. It's so important to be deeply sensitive to those moments of being drawn away because you're always being drawn away to something in your life in this moment. You're being drawn away to a thought or to a sound or to a sensation. And actually, you know, if you're being drawn away to something where aversion or a flinch is arising, this actually asks for the kind of redirecting of the meta practice where the phrases may change. I've always found it quite, quite interesting in this teaching, the way in which ill will and fear are so closely related and how much ill will is based upon past injury or fear of injury in the present or fear of injury in the future, the fear of another person's power, perhaps, to injure us, which is not always imaginary, by the way. 
But it, I mean, if you look upon this, you know, from again from an evolutionary science point of view, you know, that fear of injury is pretty much, and protecting that is pretty much hard, was pretty much hardwired, you know, pretty necessary. But then today in our world, it's not anymore about you know looking out for marauding tribes that we're protecting from. You know, we're actually protecting our sense of self from perceived possibility of injury. And this is often where the ill will arises from, I think. You know, the fear that if someone kind of, you know, criticizes me or rebukes me or disagrees with me, that somehow my self-view is going to be injured and going to be diminished. And so a lot of ill will is actually a protection mechanism. But actually what it's protecting is often something that is not doing us a great deal of service. You know, it's a kind of a fixed view of me that I feel I need to preserve because I don't know what the alternative is. You know, if I didn't have this fixed view of me, I might just dissolve into a marshmallow or something. So, so it's actually protecting a fixed view of self from perceived possibility of injury, not even necessarily you know, the ones that might exist in rabid dogs or, you know, something like that. It's, it's, so it, that is actually really helpful to actually look a little bit carefully at the origins of ill will, the origins of aversion without making it into a project, but looking at its relationship to fear. And, you know, this certainly does bring matter into the domain of an insight practice. Because the, you know, meta here is is really designated to uproot this pattern of fear and ill will, and all that it is endeavoring to protect. Um, I'm done with meta. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> done. <laughs> Actually, I'm not quite done. Good, good, good. I'm not quite done with Meta, as Christina is. Christina's all washed up with it. But <laughs> uh, I want to now, in a sense, um, bring it into the next moment, which is where we're going into um, what we usually translate as compassion. There are a number of ways of translating this. Again, please note the religiosity of the word compassion that the early translators used because they drew it from the Christian tradition. And I've been playing around a lot with this because going back to etymologies and roots, I'm terribly sad like this. I do this in my spare time, you know. looking at roots of these words and and trying to figure out better ways of translating them. Um, And the first thing I'd like to say is metta and karuna. Let's just use that word. The other other word that's used in terms of... The other word that's used here, which is this word. And I'll say something I'll say something about that. Let's just put this
Okay. This is the word that's usually translated um, as compassion. Looking back at the roots and its connection with what we've been speaking about really for the last couple of days, you know, apart from the brief overview, the word actually means something like outgoing kindness. And it's not separate from metta. If one developed metta in the ways that have been suggested, using this as a practice, then karuna is, if you like, the natural manifestation in outward behavior. It's actually derived from a root. I'm sorry about this, but it does help us to just think about these a little bit. It's derived from a root, which is this which has a number of meanings, which is pronounced Cree, believe it or not. Um, but that root is the root of another word in Pali, which means to act, yeah. which is the word Kriya. Uh, it also has a, a, another meaning, which means to turn outwards. Couple them together, we get something like the ability to turn outwards and to act with kindness. This is what we are terming compassion. The first thing I want you to note about that, um, and I think it's a really, really important dimension of this, is note how when we start start to talk about what we've been referring to primarily as compassion, that it's not something which is just a nice mental state. The real manifestation of this kindness that I'm speaking about, is activity, doing something. Yeah? This word kri, kriya, means to do, to act. It's actually the same root as the word karma as well in Pali, or kamma as it is in Pali. We tend to use the Sanskrit version. So this is an activity. It's not just a state of mind. We can get fooled into thinking that compassion is, as I kind of quite crudely put it yesterday, just a gooey state of mind that we can have. When one, if you like, and this is the way you can read it almost in a text, when one is brimming with metta, then there is no choice but to act. No choice but to act with kindness in this outgoing way. The other dimension which I want to mention here as well, and interestingly, although I'm talking quite a lot about this, this is not the primary word that's used in the Pali Canon for um, what we're calling compassion here. The other thing is this ability to turn outwards. What does that mean? Many of you will know the so-called story, the biography of the Buddha, and it says, you know, after his awakening, he didn't necessarily want to teach. He said, this might be vexatious to me. (laughs) <laughs> in other words, difficult um, to get across this, this teaching, this particular message. And it says that um, one of the gods, Brahma Sahampati, came and asked the Buddha to teach, and it says that he looked or turned his eye outwards and saw suffering. He saw dukkha. And from that moment, he took the vow to teach. Now, in that story, I think it's something very, very interesting because 
it's, in a sense, what's being suggested is to make the movement from simply being obsessed, turned inwards with our own sense of difficulties, to actually manifesting and turning outwards and seeing others. And I would suggest seeing wounded others. Seeing the wounded world that we live in, that we inhabit in. So the primary motivating force behind this is the awareness of dukkha. And its activational force or its activity is the wish to help. Now one can only genuinely do that from this sense by turning away from one's own difficulties, neuroses, uh, all of our stuff that we obsess upon and fix upon. And to move into connection. Now the words, you don't get this in English because it just doesn't work. The words in Pali have a connectivity. All of the positive virtues have a sense of connectedness with others. So metta, for example, has this connectivity. Karuna, the other word I'm going to use, anukampa, has this connectivity with others. It actually literally glues us to others. Whereas all of the negative dimensions, the greed, the aversion, the delusion, the angers, all of these in their Pali forms have a sense of pushing us away from others. So the moment we start to make the move into metta and the development of metta in this insightful way, learning from the insights that we gain, we learn to turn outwards and connect with others. To really, really connect. And the connection here is through action, through activity. So this is not about what one feels, but about what one does. So if we're going to use this word compassion, what I'm calling outgoing kindliness, it's about what one does in this world. So metta manifests as kindness towards others. Now, let's just think about that a second. We can, we can draw massive idealizations about what I mean by that kindness. You know, I'm going to be dripping with kindness the next time I meet the difficult person in my life. No. The kindness here might just be the ability to listen for a second longer than you would do normally. We don't need to build great illusions about what this is about. It's the ability, perhaps, to respond slightly differently, to give a little bit more space to that difficult person. These are all manifestations of kindness. And it also might mean, let's moving away from the difficult person, the thinking of others in gestures or activities that we engage in that removes, for example, I don't know, the rock that's lying there in the road that somebody might trip over or their car might bump over, hurt them, hurt you know, and damage them. It's that ability to think about others in an outgoing sense that really... Uh, connects, even if they're not there. Yeah? So it is these little acts of kindness which are the manifestations of metta. So it's not something separate. 
It, as I think I said last night, perhaps I think it was response to a question, in many ways there are not three things, there are not four things, there are three things here. There is metta and its manifestation as karuna and ukampa, and there is joy and there is equanimity here. These two are the foundations. We haven't done it yet, have we? But there's an image, a beautiful image that's given in a 14th century Tibetan text uh, by Long Champa. Yeah, who's a Nyingma lama and writer. And he presents a beautiful picture of the interconnectedness of all of these four elements you know, of the Brahma Viharas. And the image that he presents us with goes something like this, and it's pretty well almost a direct, uh, a direct quote from him, which is, out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion. Watered by tears of joy and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. So the dynamic, I'll say it again, right? I'm having gestures from the back of the room about saying it again. (laughs) Out of the soil of metta, of friendliness, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by tears of joy and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. It's a lovely image, a lovely image of the interconnectedness between these, what I'm calling three things, but actually is four in this particular image. How they work together in supporting each other. So out of this soil, this is why we've spent so much time on metta, examining it in different angles, and Christina a lot today, examining it from the point of view of our relationship to ill will. Out of this grows this manifestation of karuna. It's almost like it can't help itself. It comes out of that overwhelming sense of connectedness which comes through an insight that arises of the value of friendliness in this life. And that can be a recollection practice, to actually recollect the value of friendliness in this life. To actually recollect the consequences of ill will, the consequences of aversion in this life. And in doing that in a regular way, and it's quite a good contemplation to do this in a fairly regular way, not an obsessive way, but a regular way, I think, can help us to strengthen our sense of the development of these particular forms in our life and how valuable they are in our lives to get us to move into a place of valuing of them. Sorry, I'm hogging things. Okay. And we're not going to have time this afternoon, so we will continue this tomorrow, but... I mean, I just echo and want to agree with just John is saying about we have to consider these qualities as spectrum words. Um, and, you know, with this word compassion, as well as karuna, which we're often used to thinking of as compassion, it's, we might say that its roots are not only metta, its roots are anukampa. And Anukampa probably bears a more close resemblance 
to how you've often heard Karuna used, which is much more to do with this quality of empathy, the quality of the heart's unfiltered trembling in the face of suffering. And I use the word unfiltered very specifically because it's not about yours or mine or right or wrong, but that capacity of the heart to tremble faced with suffering, giving rise to very much what John is speaking out, the quality of responsiveness. So there's nothing passive that is then born of that trembling. It's actually the root of what we might call all wise action, all ethical action, all acts of care in our lives. Um, Anukampa, in my own sense, a word that's used far more frequently in the early texts than karuna. This is because this quality of empathy is actually the foundation of, of what follows, um, which is probably where we might carry on tomorrow. Can I just make one more comment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got two minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> but if I have one more, then. Okay. <laughs> I'll toss you for it. <laughs> okay. Anukampa. Um, just echoing what Christina says, this word actually is used um, by the Buddha virtually in every circumstance that he talks about compassion. Yeah. And the word literally means, um, you know, has resonances of this trembling of the heart uh, resonating along with but the word literally, if you translate it literally, means to cry out at the crying out of another. Yeah. I think it's a very powerful way of looking at it, to cry out at the crying out of another. So it's really to engage with another's pain yeah. and to feel that pain of the other. This is the foundation, um, particularly, of all really what I call engaged ethics. And in some traditions, this word karuna, anukampa, or anukrosha, as it is actually in Sanskrit, um, this gets taken up as, and is translated not as compassion, but as responsibility. In Tibetan, for example, in the Nyingma tradition, the word is taken up within that tradition. Instead of talking about compassion, they talk about responsibility, breaking it up, responsibility the ability to respond to others. Yeah. So it takes it out of just a nice kind of feeling, a feel-good factor about others, even if it's painful, uh, empathizing in this kind of more abstract way into a, a direct sense of what responsibility, what response can I make to the other in the face of their pain? What response can I make to myself in the face of my own pain and distress in this world? What wise response can I make in both cases? And I think that's possibly where we'll start tomorrow. One, one minute, yep. Have one minute quietly before we go into the walking period. Mm -hmm.
So again, thank you for your attention in a thank long you. session of listening. I know that that can be quite demanding. Um, so really encourage you to go into this half-hour walking period before dinner. Um, and then we, we come back afterwards for to sit and again this evening to have a period for questions which actually also don't need to be rehearsed. <laughs> Think of that meta. The liberation from rehearsal. <laughs>